If you have your Bibles, open them up with me to the book of Exodus chapter 19. A week ago, I really thought we'd get through the whole chapter today. Nope, that's not going to happen. But we're going to look at the first eight verses. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll put the words on the screen. But Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Three years ago, my wife and I celebrated our 20th anniversary by going to California to visit the Redwood Forest. I don't know how many of you have been, but these are some of the most beautiful trees in the world. We even visited the Hyperion, which is the tallest tree in the world, 380 feet. And yes, we hugged that tree. But there's a reason why these redwoods are so tall, why they can reach so high. It's because their roots extend out far, and these trees connect with one another. It is because they are connected. They can grow so high, and they can be so strong. They can be so durable. Many of the trees in this forest are more than 2,000 years old. Well, I tell you this because it's not just redwood trees that grow taller by being connected. It turns out that is true for every child of God. We need connection. We need community. God created us. He sent his only begotten son to die for us, not only to save us, but also to make us into a people. He brings us together as a people so that together we can worship him and serve him and make him known. And this is an essential part of spiritual growth. I love what Eugene Peterson said years ago. He said, I am not myself by myself. What do you mean by that? You're not going to grow into the man or woman. God wants you to be by yourself because we need each other. Now, this is especially evident in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So far in the book of Exodus, we have seen what God did, how God delivered Israel from Egypt. When we come to chapter 19, we see why God did it. God did it so that he could have a special relationship with a special people. And it is at this point in Exodus that God does something new. He establishes a covenant with the nation of Israel. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is simply a relationship that is based on a promise. God made a promise to Noah when he said, I will not flood the whole earth again. God made a promise to Abraham when he said, through you, I will make you a nation and all nations will be blessed. God made a promise to David when he said a descendant of yours will one day sit on the throne. He'll reign forever and his kingdom will have no end. Well, in Exodus 19, God makes a promise, but unlike many other covenants we see in Scripture, 
This covenant involves promises that are made by God, but also promises that are made by the people. But God is calling them into a covenant relationship. A relationship that is based on these mutual promises. God's calling them to be a covenant people. Now, we'll read this, and of course, a lot of people have questions about this passage. For example, we are not Israel. And so some will ask, does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? I believe we're going to see pretty clearly in the Word of God this morning that this very much does apply to us today. And there are some things that we can learn from this covenant about what it means for us to be a covenant people, what it means for us to live this out today. And we're going to see that we can do this because there are some things that we have in common. There are three things that we not only have in common with Israel in Exodus chapter 19, but some things that as believers we have in common with one another. And first of all, we have a common story. We have a common story. At the very beginning of this chapter, the Bible tells us that Moses arrives at Mount Sinai. You remember back in chapter 3 when he came and saw that burning bush and God spoke to him God told Moses, you will return and serve me on this mountain. In other words, Moses, you will be back. I can't imagine how encouraging that must have been for Moses through all the trials and through everything he went through to know that he had God's word. He had God's promise that, yes, he would make it back to that place. And three months later, sure enough, just as God said, here they are. Look at verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, And brought you to myself. Moses went up the mountain to meet with God. There God spoke to him. And I want you to notice how God summarized what had basically been the story of Israel. God summarized their history in just one verse. Everything that had happened. Their slavery in Egypt. The plagues. The Passover. The Red Sea. God said, all of that, in all that I did, I bore you, I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. This is God's one-verse summary. God said, I did for you what an eagle does for her young. Well, what exactly does the eagle do? There are some species of eagles, not all of them, but there are some species of eagles in which the mother has a very interesting way of training her young. When these baby eagles or these eaglets are hatched, at first, all they have to do is sit in the nest 
and enjoy the warmth of the mother for about three months. If they're hungry, they just open up their beak. Someone comes along and drops something off. Man, isn't that a good life? Who wouldn't want that? But there's one problem. God did not create the eagle to sit comfortably in the nest. God created the eagle to soar. And so there will come this point in time where the mama eagle will decide, it is time for you to go. It's time to leave the nest. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, it ain't just eagles. But this mother eagle or this father eagle will decide, it's time for you to leave the nest. And so that mama eagle will take her young. And I've seen this in a nature video. It was years ago. Maybe you've seen this on TV as well, where that mother eagle will grab her young and fly up high in the sky. And then what does she do? She lets them go. And of course, the eaglet at this point cannot fly. He doesn't have the strength. He doesn't have the feathers. But he's falling down helplessly, hopelessly. He's certain that he is about to die. And he would have, except at the very last moment before he had a chance to hit bottom, the mama eagle swoops in and catches her young. And at times, as you saw in that one picture, she'll even allow her young on her back while she flies and they learn. She will literally lift them up with her wings. God said to Moses, and God said to Israel, you see that eagle? That's what I did for you. This is how you got here. You did not pull yourself up by the bootstraps, so to speak. You didn't get here because you fought so well or because you worked so hard. God said, oh no, you were that eaglet falling from the sky helplessly, hopelessly. You would have perished. But then I swooped in and saved you and I carried you on eagle's wings to myself. Now that was Israel's history to that point. And God called Israel to be a covenant people because they shared that story. They had that story in common. And thus, as a people, they were to remind each other of that story so that they would never, ever forget. Well, that was Israel's story. But hear me when I say, that is also the story of every born-again child of God. Maybe you were raised in church and saved at a young age. Maybe you grew up far from God and were saved at a later point in life. But if you know Christ, you were that eagle falling to your death. You would have perished. But just when you thought you were going to hit the bottom, God came in, and by His grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ, He saved you. You didn't do it. God did it. 
Part of the problem that we have these days with a lot of people is they don't want to admit that they are falling. They don't want to admit that they've fallen short, and they don't want to admit that they need rescuing. But this is, in fact, the story of all of the redeemed. In some ways, our stories may be different. But in this one way, our stories are the same. We have this story in common. And so God calls us to be a covenant people so that as a people we can worship the Lord and serve the Lord and tell others about the Lord so that we can together celebrate this story lest we forget. Part of being a covenant people means we have a common story, but it also means we have a common purpose. We have a common purpose. God reminds Israel of their story, how he redeemed them, and then he tells them what their response to that should be. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, let's focus on the first part of that verse for a moment. God said to Israel, if you do certain things, this will be the result. Unlike previous covenants, this covenant that God made with Moses was conditional. God said, if you obey me, if you hear me, if you keep this covenant, here is what will happen. And so, after this, in chapters 20 through 23, God lays out this covenant before them. He gives them what we refer to as simply the law. There are three parts to that law. It starts off with the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, which applies to each and every one of us. He also gives Israel numerous civil laws and ceremonial laws that were specific to the nation of Israel. But God gives the people this covenant. He gives them the law. And a lot of people misunderstand this. A lot of people will misunderstand verse 5 simply because they don't know what this particular covenant is all about. So put on your thinking cap and listen to me very carefully. This covenant in Exodus 19 is not about salvation. God is not saying, do these things and I will save you from your sins. Salvation has already taken place. Remember, they were saved at the Passover when a lamb was sacrificed, its blood was shed, and they believed the promise of God. And as we saw, that is a beautiful and clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This covenant that God introduces in verse 5, it is not about their salvation, it is about their blessings. God says, to the extent that you do this, 
I will bless you. I'll make your fields grow. I'll prosper you. I'll protect you from your enemies. And so the order here is very important. First comes salvation, and then comes obedience. First comes faith, and then comes the law. By the way, could you imagine if God had done that the other way around? Could you imagine if Moses had received the Ten Commandments and then had to carry those tablets all the way to Egypt? Can you imagine? He carries these tablets with the Ten Commandments. He gets to Egypt and he says, Hey, everybody, the Lord spoke to me and he told me to tell you that here are these rules. And God says, if you will do all of these things, if you will obey all of these rules, God says, do this and I will save you from Egypt. They would still be slaves in Egypt to this day if God had done it that way. They were not saved by their obedience to the law. They were saved by faith and the blood of a lamb and then God gave them the law. That's how God did it then and that is still how God does it now. But obedience is the expectation of those who have been redeemed. Trust and obey is still the order. And God said to Israel, here will be the result. God said, you're going to be three things. This is why I made you a people. This is why I saved you, so that you could fulfill this purpose, so that you could be these three things. God says, you're going to be a special treasure. Did you notice in verse 5, the second half of that verse, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. I want you to think about those two statements at the end of verse 5. You're my special treasure, all the earth is mine. Now those two statements are linked to one another. And perhaps some of us could understand it a little better if we think about those two in reverse. For example, God said, all the earth is mine. Every mountain, every valley, every waterfall, every ocean sunrise, God says, it's all mine. It all belongs to me. But you, you will be my special treasure. How amazing, by the way, that God would even refer to people, redeemed sinners, as his special treasure. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a man that many of you may be familiar with by the name of Carlos Slim. Carlos Slim used to be, a few years ago, the richest man in the world. And then all of you started buying everything on Amazon, and somebody else is now the richest man in the world. But Carlos Slim, a multi-billionaire, he loves art. He loves to collect works of art. In fact, he owns 60,000 different works of art. So about 10 years ago, he decided to build 
this museum in Mexico City, Museo Somaya, named after his late wife, he decided to build this museum as a place to house all the many works of art which he owns. Now, I can go to this museum, I hope to one day, haven't been there yet, I can go to this museum and I can walk the halls and enjoy every piece of art. But there is something Carlos Slim can do that I cannot do and you cannot do. Carlos Slim can walk through this museum and at every single piece of art, he can point to it and say, see that? That's mine. Every painting, every sculpture, it belongs to me. Now, we can't say that, but he can say that because it's true. He owns every piece of art in that museum. But now imagine you were to take a tour of that museum with Mr. Slim himself. And imagine as you're walking through that museum, Carlos Slim says to you, all of this is mine, it all belongs to me, but... Let me show you my special treasure. Let me show you my treasured possession. You automatically know that whatever it is, it must be beautiful. Now with that in mind, go back to verse 5. And God says... All the earth is mine, but you, O Israel, but you, my covenant people, you are my treasured possession. And do you realize that what God said about Israel in Exodus chapter 19 is what the Apostle Paul said about the church in Ephesians chapter 2? And talking about those who've been saved by grace, through faith, he says in that 10th verse, we are God's workmanship. That Greek word many times referred to a work of art. Some translations say God's masterpiece. Some translations say God's handiwork. Christian brother, Christian sister, according to the word of God, we the redeemed are God's masterpiece. Why? Because we're so good? No. Because we're so smart? No. Because we're so attractive? No. We are God's masterpiece because the moment we were redeemed, we became trophies of grace. That moment God saved you, you became an example of what God can do. You were dead, but God gave you life. You were lost, but now you are found. You were hopeless, but now you have living hope. What makes us a masterpiece is not any greatness in us. It's the greatness of God that is reflected in us. That is what makes us a masterpiece. And it is our common purpose as a covenant people to enjoy God's presence 
and to be this special treasure. God says you will be my special treasure. But then he says a couple of other things in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Notice their purpose was to be, he said, a kingdom of priests. Later on, in the law, God establishes the priesthood and how Aaron and his descendants would be priests in Israel. But that's not what God's talking about here. Before God established the priesthood in Israel, God said to Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests. There was a sense in which every Israelite was a priest. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, that means that Israel was to do for the rest of the world what a priest did for the people. It was Israel's job to represent Yahweh to the world and to tell the world about all the great things that he has done. There's an author by the name of Philip Ryken who I believe correctly says that for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, it meant that they were to do at least four things. For them to be a kingdom of priests meant that they were to set an example for the nations so that the nations would desire their blessings for themselves. They were to proclaim the truth of God to the nations so they would know how they could know Him. They were to pray for the nations. And they were to preserve the Word of God for the nations so that they could benefit from everything that God had spoken to the prophets. And once again, we come to the New Testament And what was said about Israel in Exodus 19 is also said about us. You get to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and it says that we are priests before God. Did you know that according to the Bible, every single follower of Christ is a priest? That we ourselves can approach God. Yes, we have access to God, but we also have the responsibility of representing Him to the world. And we are to set an example. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to pray. And we are to share God's Word. All of those things that Israel did as a kingdom of priests in the Old Testament, we the church are to do in the New Testament. And folks, if you haven't realized it, God has given to us, as a kingdom of priests, He's given to us the most important work in all of the universe. The task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. God did not have to do it this way. He could have done it Himself. He could have sent the angels. But no, He chooses us. He chooses to use us For this great task, Israel is called God's special treasure, kingdom of priests. And then in verse 6, he calls them a holy nation. He said, you're going to be a holy nation. Of course, that word holy 
means to be separated, to be set apart. Just as God is separated from us in purity, Israel was to be separate from all of the other nations. Four times in the Old Testament, I read where Israel was called to come and worship God, and I love this phrase, in the beauty of holiness. When the people of God come together as a holy people and worship Him, the Bible says there's something beautiful there. There's something that is attractive to this world. But unfortunately, as you know, more times than not, Israel was not a holy nation. Israel did not stand out. Instead, Israel copied the pagan nations around them, imitating their behavior and worshiping their false gods and idols. And once again, I know I keep repeating myself, we are not Israel. And yet, what God said Israel was to do, we are told to do as the church. And I want you to listen to what Peter said. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, listen to this. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Did verse 9 sound at all familiar to you? Of course it did. Peter clearly had Exodus 19 in mind. And Peter took those words that God spoke through Moses to Israel and speaking to an audience of Jews and Gentiles, Peter said, hey, all of this applies to you. You are a special people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And remember the context. We are to do these things as a people. We do these things as we come together. We actually need each other for these things to be a practical reality in our lives. We need to stay connected to one another. We need to be connected to those who share that same purpose in life that God has given to us as the community of the redeemed. Or else we will forget as well. Part of being a covenant people means we have a common story. We have a common purpose. But then there's one more thing I want you to notice. We have a common need. We have a common need. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. God said to Israel, if you do these things, here's what will happen. Here are the blessings you'll receive. Here's what you will become if you do these things. And it says, all of the people, collectively, they all said, we will do all that 
the Lord spoke. So let me just ask you a very simple question. Did they? There's a reason why you're laughing. Did they do all that the Lord spoke? Here's another question. Did they do any of what the Lord spoke? How about another one? Did they do any of it for even a little while? Do you realize Israel broke the covenant before Moses had a chance to bring it down from the mountain? The ink was still wet, so to speak. Israel failed to do all that God spoke. They did not keep the covenant. They failed to do these things, but let me tell you something. So did we. Lest we look down on them, so did we. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because they did not keep it and because we do not keep it. God knew that we had a special need. God knew that we would all need someone who would come and keep the law on our behalf. So years later, the prophet Jeremiah comes along, and I'm not going to read it, but chapter 31, verse 31, God says, I'm going to establish a new covenant, not like the ones I made with your fathers after I brought them out of Egypt. In other words, this new covenant will not be like Exodus 19. Instead of giving us the law, God gives us someone who would keep the law in our place. Someone who would take and pass the test that every single one of us failed. And that's what Jesus did. He came from heaven to earth. He lived the life we should have lived. He succeeded in every point where we failed. And then he laid down his life on the cross. And why did he do that? You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Before he went to the cross, when they gathered in the upper room, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, do you remember what he said? He took that cup and said, you see this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, that covenant that God promised you through Jeremiah, here it is in the shedding of my blood upon the cross the blood that Jesus shed means that new covenant God promised has indeed come. And as a result, we can be a part of this community, the community of the redeemed. And we can enjoy this personal, special relationship with God. And we can do it together. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great story. How you lift us up on eagles' wings. When we would have perished, when we could not save ourselves, 
that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could not do. We thank you, Lord, that he brought in this new covenant by his own blood, which he shed upon the cross, so that we can come to you and relate to you Not on the basis of the law that we have broken, but on the basis of the law that Jesus has kept. And that through Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And we can have new life. And we can have a living hope. And we can be all of these things that you called Israel to be, but she failed to be. That we can experience life as your special treasure, as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, a holy people. And so, Father, I pray you to help us to understand these things we've learned today and understand that these things come about through community, as a people. That you've called us to be a covenant people. God, how we need each other. How we need to remind ourselves of these truths so that we can together grow up in them. Help us, O Lord, truly to grow towards greater levels of spiritual maturity. And I pray for those who perhaps have never entered into this new covenant because they've never believed in the one who came and died and rose again, Jesus. There's never been a moment where they confessed him as Savior and Lord of their lives. God, maybe there's somebody in this room right now who needs to be saved. Right now, they're still like that baby eaglet falling, 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 and they'll perish if you don't intervene and save them. And we know that your word says, whosoever shall merely call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God, I pray that this would be that day that they call upon the name of Jesus. That you save them by grace through faith alone. Have your way in these next moments. Show us what you'd have us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.